speaking on the subject, that which changed heaven forever. I hope that got your attention. Did you know heaven has changed? If you're not convinced of that, I hope you will be by the end of this sermon. Ephesians chapter 4, just one verse, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he quotes from the 68th Psalm. When he says in verse 8, wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That's referring to Jesus. That's the Messiah. When he ascended. On the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection, as it's recorded in Luke 24, if you can find that place quickly, I'll wait on you just a, a minute to read with me verses 25 and 26. Jesus is speaking to these disciples, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, not very far away from Jerusalem. If you go over to Israel today, you can traverse that same road. And he says this to them in verse 25, then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, not slow of mind, but slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, the Old Testament prophets. That's all they had, right? At that point. Verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things, the things that had just happened in Jerusalem that they were talking about, they were so sad about. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his what class? Glory. It hadn't happened before then. But he entered into his glory. Jesus prayed for that glory in John chapter 17, which is the true Lord's Prayer. You've heard me say that many times. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of our Savior. I think this is the, the template for the way he prays for us now. This is the only thing he prayed for himself. The rest, of the, song, the rest of the chapter is for us. He says, Lord, keep them. Lord, make them one. Lord, let them see my glory. Lord, Father, sanctify them. The only thing Jesus asks for himself is right here. Verse 1 and verse 5. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Verse 5, he picks up on that. After saying he had glorified his Father on the earth, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Tremendous truth. And then look what he prayed for us about in verse 24. John 17, 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me, are you one of them? Are you one of those given to Jesus by the Father? Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Why? So they can walk on streets of gold, see those pearly gates? <laughs> so they can see that crystal stream? No, that's not what he says that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Maybe you've had this happen to you, because it happened to me recently. Have you ever been reading a book, and for whatever reason, maybe it was technical, maybe it was just deep stuff, it required a lot of concentration. So you get up early when your mind is fresh, 
and you try to minimize the distractions because it's not easy reading, just about every sentence you have to reread two or three times before you feel like you finally understand it. Then all of a sudden, you read something that just jolts you, leaps off the page at you, knocks your socks off. You do a double take. And you think, does that say what I think it said? That just happened to me a few weeks ago. I was reading a statement in a book you gave me. Y'all are to blame for this. On the 10th anniversary of my being your pastor, you gave me a whole set of the books of the great Puritan John Owen. He lived in the 1600s. I think about 20 volumes. And the last one he wrote, which is numbered number one, it deserves to be number one in the whole set, but it was the last book he wrote. He made this statement as a book on the glory of Jesus Christ, and he made this statement that jolted me. Heaven itself was not what it is now since the entrance of Christ into his glory. When he ascended and entered the heavenly sanctuary as our great high priest. Now, I didn't believe that just because John Owen said it. But I did what I hope you do. I went to the scriptures to see if those things were so, like the Berean Christians. And John Owen is right. That statement both thrilled me and jolted me at the same time. It triggered, I have to be honest with you, it triggered some honest soul searching. And I had to ask myself this question, and I hope you'll ask yourself this question. Do I know anything about heaven? Or do I have misconceptions about it? Do I have a true scriptural conception of heaven? And are my motives pure and right for wanting to go there? So if I asked you that question, why do you want to go to heaven, what would you say? Before you answer, would you consider a most important and foundational question? And that is, why does Jesus want you to go there? Why does Jesus want you in heaven? We just read it. Verse 24, John 17. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Folks, it's all about his glory. It's all about Jesus' glory. Finding out what Jesus' glory is and longing for it, wanting to experience it because, are you listening? That's what he prayed for. Do you think he gets his prayers answered? You know, it's easy to give a selfish answer to that question, why do you want to go to heaven? It's not altogether wrong to say this, but if this is the main reason, we're in trouble. If we say so that I won't have any more pain or stress, I won't have any more troubles or tribulations. I won't have any more hurtful relationships with people. I won't have any more drama in my life. Or so I can walk on streets of gold and see those pearly gates, and, or so that I can even escape hell. If that's the best we can come up with, we're in trouble. Are we any better, if that's all we can come up with, are we any better than the devout Muslim who dreams of a sensual paradise with 72 dark-eyed virgins? I'm serious. Are we any better than many early Native Americans who wanted to go to the happy hunting grounds so that they can hunt and feast to their soul's delight? 
Are we any better than the ancient Greeks who had their mythological Elysian fields, which were beautiful meadows where it never rains or hails or snows, and where they drink from a river first so that they forget all of their suffering on earth? I mean, is our heaven any better than that? Do you think maybe the true blessedness of heaven is something spiritual relating to the nature of God? Are your motives for wanting to go, into, for wanting to go to heaven, are they any better than the heathen who fantasize after the afterlife? I'm asking, I'm serious. I believe many professing Christians in independent Baptist churches, just like friendship, they don't have an honorable motive for going to heaven at all. So let's examine our hearts this morning and dig a little bit deeper and see what the Bible says about what it is that makes heaven glorious, and in particular what it was that changed heaven forever to make it the glorious place it is now. And I can answer it in one sentence. It is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't make a big to-do about the ascension. We have Easter Sunday, we commemorate the resurrection, but we kind of shy away from the liturgy of the formal churches that have Ascension Sunday and Whitsuntide and all those other things. I'm afraid we do a disservice to ourselves when we don't really make a big deal about the Ascension of Jesus. So let me ask three questions and let me answer them from the Word of God today, and I hope this will fix itself in your mind about this subject. The first question is, what was this glory for which Jesus prayed? If it's a big deal, then I, what was it? Jesus prayed for this glory in chapter 17 of John in the first verse and in the fifth verse, and then he referred to it several other times, and he prayed for us to be able to see it and experience it in verse 24. His high priestly prayer. By the way, Although he was talking to his father, who else heard him? The disciples. Jesus prayed this, among other reasons, for the benefit of his disciples. Like I said, it was all about them. This was the only request he made for himself, Father, glorify thou me. The rest of the chapter is, Lord, keep them, sanctify them, make them one, love them like you love me. It's all about them. But Jesus prayed, Father, glorify thou me. What did he mean? What is the glory of Jesus Christ? Please don't miss this. The glory of Jesus Christ is the manifestation of all that God is. Because in him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is the manifestation of God. And the chiefest thing that stands out is His holiness. God is holy. You ever had a, one of those little pinwheels, you know, that you put in front of a fan and it spins and it's got all the colors, all the fundamental colors? When it spins, what color does it show? White. At least it's supposed to, if it's in its right proportions. And let me tell you, when all the attributes of God are spinning, it comes up pure white for His holiness. God is holy. 
Jesus is the only perfectly holy man who ever lived. What kind of glory was it that Jesus prayed for, that God would glorify him with and that we would be able to behold? Well, from this passage, we can answer it three words. First of all, it was a recovered glory. Notice what he said in verse 5, John 17. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. From eternity past, Jesus was with the Father, in the bosom of the Father. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30, it talks about the, the Son is speaking here, and He says, I was in the bosom of the Father. I was always by Him as one brought up with Him. I was daily His delight. But Jesus laid aside all that when He came to this earth. He condescended when He was incarnated. He took upon Him the form of a servant. He wore a homespun robe. His disciples only saw His glory in brief flashes on occasion, like at the transfiguration. But let me tell you something. Just because Jesus, while He was here on this earth, He didn't razzle and dazzle people with His glory. Don't forget that He is and was the Lord of glory. He was the darling of heaven. He was the effulgence, the brightness of His Father's glory, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. There were times, as I referred to already, when even while he was here on this earth for 33 and a half homesick years, God parted the curtain and gave some sneak previews. God spoke from heaven on one occasion when Jesus said, Father, glorify thou me. And the Father spoke and said, I have both glorified thy name and I will glorify it again. And now, with the shadow of the cross cast over him, darkening his path, as he prayed this high priestly prayer, he says, and I want to be reverent, but this is the essence of it. Father, let me have it back. Let me have that glory that I had with you before the world was. It was a glory he was about to recover that he'd had before. What kind of glory was it? Secondly, it was a resurrection glory. You know when Jesus was glorified? When he was resurrected. And, and the Bible refers to that in John chapter 7, verse 39, even before Jesus went to the cross. It talks about the fact as he stood there in the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For as the Scripture has said, He that cometh unto me and drinketh, believeth unto me, out of his belly, out of his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water, what was he referring to? The next verse goes on to say it's in parenthesis, but that doesn't mean it's not important. In parenthesis, it says, This spake he of the Holy Ghost, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet what? Glorified. But when he was raised from the dead, Jesus was glorified. And later that same day, the day of his resurrection, he breathed on his disciples and he said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And something happened. 
Because when you compare John 20, verse 22, where those words are found, with Luke chapter 24, verse 45, I believe it is, you'll see that the very next thing that happened, the change that came over those disciples was, for the first time, they understood the Scriptures. He understood the Scriptures. He opened their understanding. So if they would understand the Scriptures, that He must rise from the dead. Glorification. 1 Peter 1, verse 21 referring to us who by him, by Jesus, do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Wow. And Jesus said in John 14, 30, because I live, ye shall live also. Aren't you glad that the resurrection of Jesus Christ out from among the dead on the third day is the pledge and the pattern of our resurrection? Because he lives, we shall live too if we know him. I don't know about you, but I long to be delivered from this temple of clay. I'm not yet fully redeemed. Oh, I'm thankful that I have been redeemed. In one, I've been redeemed from my sin. I've been justified. I've been delivered from the guilt and the penalty of sin. But I'm still being delivered every day from the power of sin. And one day when I stand before Jesus, hallelujah, I'll be delivered from, delivered from the very presence of sin. But it ain't happening yet. One day, oh, blessed day, we shall see the king in his beauty. And when we shall see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Beloved, that's what our eyes were designed for. Have you ever thought about that? That's why God gave you eyes. So that one day you'll see Jesus in his glory. It's not to behold the faded and false glamour of this world that just captivates so many people. As the bodies of wicked men will be restored unto them to complete their misery in hell, so the bodies of the just will be restored to them to heighten and to consummate their blessedness in heaven. Hallelujah! We shall rise in the likeness of our risen Lord. Every Sunday ought to be a resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday around here. What kind of glory is it? It's a recovered glory, the glory Jesus had with his Father before the world was. It's a resurrection glory. Thirdly, it is a regnant glory. That means a kingly glory, a glory associated with coronation. We've been thinking a lot about the British monarchy lately with what we've heard in the news, right? Queen Elizabeth, the longest reigning British monarch, 70 years, just died. Some of you are old enough to remember when she was crowned in 1953. My mother's gone, but she would talk about it. She saw the pictures. She pointed them out to me in the encyclopedia we had. The only color section in the encyclopedia was the part about Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. It was a pretty gala affair. And the coronation of the next king, Charles III, everybody, the whole world is abuzz about it. But I'm telling you, it can't even compare to the coronation of King Jesus. It cannot compare. And so the ascension of our Lord is when that happened. Jesus was exalted. He was enthroned on high. It's far more important, the ascension, than most fundamentalists realize. We shy away from being too liturgical, so we don't make a whole lot out of Ascension Sunday. 
But I want to remind you, Jesus had to ascend so that he could be enthroned and crowned. And that crown of thorns that he wore on the cross of Calvary was exchanged for many diadems. For now he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And well should we sing, as we often do, crown him with many crowns, the king upon his throne. Jesus is both king and priest. He's made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. Melchizedek was the king priest. Who did the crowning? God the Father. Hebrews 5 verse 5 says, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he that said unto him in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. If Jesus was his son, it must be the Father who crowned him. And Jesus is now fully glorified as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, if we could only see him now. The devil doesn't want you to. He's already got you thinking about something else. He's making the, oh, that preacher gets all worked up. He's just trying to get my attention. When's he going to quit his hollering? That doesn't want you to think about the glorification of Jesus Christ. But God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. We've heard sermons about that recently here from Philippians chapter 2. Think about that. As far as Jesus is concerned, since his coronation, no more humiliation. No more abuse at the hands of wicked men. They cannot reach him now. Oh, but the faintest cry of his feeblest child touches his heart and draws virtue out of him. His prayer in John 17, verses 1 and 5, is now fully answered. Father, glorify thou me. Why? To what purpose? I take you back to verse 24. That they may behold my glory, the ones that you have given me, that they may behold my glory. So that brings me to the second question. Not only what, what was the glory that Jesus referred to and prayed for, but secondly, what did Old Testament saints experience upon death. I hope you're interested in that because it'd be hard for you to appreciate what we experience upon death of the rapture unless we realize what Old Testament saints experienced. When they died, when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Isaiah and Elijah, when they died, of course Elijah was translated to heaven, he didn't die. Did they immediately see the glory of Jesus Christ? Did they see the Lamb upon His throne? Oh, no. Because if they did, God certainly never said so. No, the Bible says that Old Testament believers went to the place in the Hebrew called Sheol, the grave, the place of departed spirits, both believing and unbelieving. And the Hebrew Sheol is equivalent to the Greek Hades. Now, just because it's translated grave so often in the Old Testament, does that mean that they're not conscious? Does that mean that they're in soul sleep? No. What were the Old Testament saints consciously experiencing before Jesus' ascension? Listen carefully. Number one, they consciously experienced union with their believing loved ones and family. What's the language the Bible uses in the Old Testament to describe what happened to people, Old Testament saints, when they die? Very significant, what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. 
It uses such expressions as they were gathered to their fathers. We find that's spoken of a about one of the kings of Israel, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 28. They slept, they were gathered to their fathers, or they slept with their fathers. That's not a term denoting just burial proximity, but it's denoting conscious union. It wasn't just that their bones were added to their father's bones in the family ossuary. Uh-uh, it's far more than that. What did King David say after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he lost the little baby that was a result of that unlawful union? He said in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. But what is not said about Old Testament saints? Listen carefully. Check me out. If I'm wrong, please let me know. What is not said, there's nothing said about anybody who died in the Old Testament being with the Lord. Isn't that amazing? With their fathers. Doesn't say anything about with the Lord. Much less does it say any, about any Old Testament saint beholding God or beholding His glory. The closest thing to it is what Job said prospectively in chapter 19, verse 25 and 26. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, that He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, He said, yet in my flesh shall I see God. But it hadn't happened yet. That was prospective. It wasn't a documentary. Now, to, be, to give credit where credit's due, Old Testament saints did seem to understand that they would not remain in Sheol forever. David said in that passage that it's messianic, but it also is true of him in Psalm 16, verse 10. He said, for thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So Old Testament saints experienced conscious union with their believing loved ones. Secondly, they experienced, please listen carefully because there's only one place in the Bible that talks about this. They experienced comfort in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is only mentioned in Luke chapter 16, verse 22. I think you know the context. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It tells about hell, talks about hell being a place of torment. Lazarus the beggar died first. The angels carried him, the Bible says, into Abraham's bosom, and then the rich man died. Abraham's bosom, it's not referred to as heaven. It seems to have been a holding area where Abraham, the father of the faithful, provided the care. It was a place of comfort. It was a place of bliss and rest. You say, where was it? Well, the Bible is not dogmatic. The location is uncertain. It could have likely been, and many Bible scholars believe it was the center of the earth, that it was within proximity of the place of the damned, because Lazarus could look over into the compartment of the damned, and the rich man could look over and see Lazarus comforted, but they couldn't cross. But please know what, is, know what is not said about Abraham's bosom. Doesn't talk about any high priest there. Doesn't talk about any lamb upon his throne there. No one is giving ascriptions of glory to the lamb there. Nothing is said about the saints there seeing God's face. 
I want to, I want to get you thinking. Why was this the case? Hebrews eleven forty. listen. Because God had provided some better thing for us. New Testament saints. That they, the Old Testament saints, without us should not be made perfect. Old Testament saints had a promise. We have the fulfillment, the reality. Jesus, our great high priest, is the perfecter of our faith. He is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, what a difference that makes. Because Jesus entered heaven at his ascension. So that brings me to the third question I wish to answer from the Word of God. What do we as New Testament believers experience immediately upon death? Or if we are privileged among, to be among those who will not die, the Bible says we, we shall not all sleep. If we're privileged to be among those who are raptured, translated, when Jesus comes again, what do we experience? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Because this is where it gets good. I've saved the best till last. I did that intentionally. I feel like a, a cow in clover or a hog in a hip high mud puddle right now. This is good. New Testament believers, and that's you and me, I trust. Immediately upon death or translation, we experience an undimmed realization of Jesus and his resplendent glory. Before Jesus ascended and entered into the glory of his sanctuary, no departed saint, not even the holy unfallen angels themselves participated in that glory which we now enjoy. Would you take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. I want you to see God's Word. It doesn't matter how excited I might be this morning, that doesn't really matter. What matters is what, what God says. A lot of people get excited about things that aren't found in God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The Apostle Peter Writing by inspiration says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Question, what prophets are they? Old Testament. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, the New Testament believers. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow exactly the same words found in Luke chapter 24. When Jesus said, ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter into his glory. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them, that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels themselves desire to look into. What a privilege is ours. Angels wish they could experience what we're going to experience. And even what we experience now. And so as we sang at the beginning of the service, Oh, that will be glory for me. Are you longing for that? Because you'll experience that immediately upon your release. From No wonder the Apostle Paul talked about the time of my departure is at hand. The word departure there in the Greek means my loosing. And, and that's the way a true child of God feels. Until we're liberated at the moment of death or at the rapture, we feel imprisoned in this temple of clay. But one of these days we're going to be liberated. 
and we'll see Jesus in his glory and we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. Until then, Abraham, Moses, and David, you can just eat your heart out. You're going to have to wait. What do we experience as New Testament saints immediately upon death or the rapture? We experience an undimmed realization of Christ's resplendent glory. But the second thing, I'll have to explain a little bit more fully. Hang in there with me, okay? We're going to go down deep, but we're not going to stay down long, I promise, okay? The second thing the New Testament saints experience immediately upon death is a purified and reconciled heaven. We say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Heaven's perfect. Okay, listen to what the Bible says. Does it shock you that I even use such language? Do we realize that even heaven itself had to be purified by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. The writer of the Hebrews, we'll find out when we get to heaven, whether it was Paul or somebody else. But he said this, it was necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens, what is he talking about? Stop. He's talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the furnishings. He's talking about the materials. That's the patterns of things in the heavens. It was necessary that the patterns of things that are in the heavens should be purified with these, the blood of, of goats and uh, bullocks and sheep that are mentioned in the foregoing verses. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Wow. The things in heaven had to be purified with the blood of Jesus Christ that he presented when he ascended on high. Why is that? The things in heaven have to be purified not because they're defiled, but they need to be purified to accommodate the joint worship of the whole society in heaven and earth. In Colossians 1, verse 20, Paul said that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross for this purpose, listen carefully, to reconcile all things unto himself. And he goes on to say, even the things in heaven, not in the heavens, but even the things in heaven. So the things in heaven were not reconciled until Jesus died. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the same thought is echoed. Just for the sake of time, I'll, I won't have you turn there. It's, it's important that you see it. I, I don't apologize for that, but I'll just read it. Trust me, I'm reading it the way it is, all right? It refers to God, and it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself, here it is, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. That's Christ. Okay, here's the rough ride. Hang in there. All things created have to be restored in Christ. There are two orders of created beings. Men, like you, including women, Men and angels. Both of these orders of created beings were created to give glory to God. And when they were first created, they were created directly to be totally dependent on God. Where were they placed? 
Where was the home of angels? Heaven. Where was the home of men? Earth. And you can get all excited about possibility of intelligent life elsewhere, especially as these James Webb telescope images come back. But let me just tell you, there ain't no intelligent life anywhere else. Because God said in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. So just don't waste your time with that. But what happened? Listen carefully. Man sinned. And oh, it was a traumatic chain of events that were set in motion when man sinned. The whole race fell in Adam. You fell. I fell in Adam's sin. We sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. The McGuffey reader that our kids used to learn to read by states that. Man sinned. The whole race fell. God cursed the earth, but he didn't curse heaven. He didn't curse heaven. Some of the angels fell, not all of them. And so God rejected them forever. The angels that fell don't have any chance to be saved. Sorry. But he graciously determined to recover and save a remnant of sinful men. I'm so thankful for that. God did not restore men and angels into their former estate. That is of immediate dependence on him. But he took those two families of whom the whole family in heaven and earth are named. And he gathered them in one. And he put them under a new head. The God-man Jesus Christ. Only he was worthy. Only he is able. Are you, did you get that? Jesus alone is the new head of God's recollected family. And to him goes all the glory from both redeemed men and unfallen angels. That's why he could say on his resurrection, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And that's why when we see the scenes in heaven described in the book of Revelation, what do we see? We see both angels. We see the cherubim and the seraphim. And we see men. We see the 24 elders representing Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. We see them all worshiping the same lamb upon the throne, doing the same thing at the same time. One big family doing the same thing. But that restoration was not consummated until Jesus ascended and was exalted at the right hand of the Father. And now he's perfectly worshipped by those two families, men and angel. I'm saying to you, heaven is not the same since the glorified Son came back home as the mighty conqueror. One of these days, some of you are going to turn Pentecostal, but until then, I'll just have to, amen, Brother Bob, that's good preaching. We were just looking at Psalm 24, Brother Peterson had you read it. If you can find it quickly, I want you to just, this thrills me. You think I've gotten excited already. You ain't seen nothing yet. Psalm 24, that's where we were at the beginning of the service. I'll just describe what's going on here. We find a dramatic 
prefiguring of that scene where the ascended Christ leads captivity captive, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. He leads all those souls from Abraham's bosom, and they approach the gates of heaven. This is in view here. This has to be what's in view here. It is rapturous. Let me tell you, no ticker tape parade on Wall Street in New York for a hometown hero, no championship reception for an athletic team on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill can even touch this. What happened when Jesus ascended? It's an antiphonal response. We do responsive scriptural reading. This is a responsive thing here. In verse 7, a vast army approaches the great gates and cries, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. He's leading them. The response from the watchman on the ramparts asks the question in the next verse, Who is this King of glory? This had never happened before. This was a new King of glory. The courtier escorts respond, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then the renewed order, lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And the watchmen ask again, who is this King of glory? And the resounding triumphant answer comes back, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. And those huge doors are drawn up like from the top like a giant portcullis with counterweights and pulleys. And that vast army of former rebels, if you read Psalm 68, are now bound by cords of love to their liege Lord, and they enter the gates with Him. Could anything be more glorious than that? Blessed be God, those gates that were opened when Jesus ascended have never been shut. They're still open for you. The vilest offender, the weakest believer is invited to come through the blood of Jesus and join the throng around the throne of the glorified Lamb. Will you be numbered among them? I could summarize everything I've tried to say in one sentence here, and I'll be done. The heaven of the child of God can be expressed this way. To be with Christ and to behold His glory. That's it. To be with Christ. That's what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 23. He said, oh, that I might depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Why could he say that? I'll tell you why he could say that. Because a short time before, he had been raptured up into the third heaven. Probably when he was stoned to death there at Lystra. He heard things that were not lawful for men to utter. And then he had to come back down to earth just like Lazarus did. And having experienced that, Paul said, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Well, well, we need to have a church conference, I know. Let me put it to a vote since we need to get in the vote mood here anyway, okay? I've got a little bit more to say about the blessed reality of things now, not just in the sweet by and by. It'd take about four or five minutes, uh, but it's time to stop. I'll, I'll concede that. How many of you say, preacher, keep on going, would you? All right, thank you, and put your hand. How many say, preacher, shut up? <laughs> okay, all right. We're going to keep on going for about four more minutes. We sang that song, oh, that will be glory for me, but I'm just here to tell you this morning, we don't have to wait. 
I want to share with you the present blessings that are ours because the glorified Christ is on the throne and He has changed heaven forever for us. I'm telling you, we are already risen with Him. We are already seated with Him in the heavenlies. Christ has already given us the glory of His Father. We have already come unto Mount Zion, as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. We've come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God. That's not just future, that's now. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to an innumerable company of angels. They're the ones around the throne with the elders. We've come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. We've come to God, the judge of all. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Who's that? Old Testament saints. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried for vengeance. The blood of Jesus Christ cries for love, forgiveness. Think of the present blessings, folks. Think of the power and privilege in prayer that no Old Testament saint, even great intercessors like Moses and Daniel, Noah had. Because we have received the Spirit that Jesus sent down once He ascended, the Spirit of the glorified Christ, the filial Spirit that causes us to cry, Abba, Father, we can now pray in Jesus' name. No Old Testament saint could ever do that. Think of the fact that the Bible says we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we can claim those riches that we jointly own with Him. God has promised in Philippians 4.19 to supply all our need according to what? According to His riches in glory where He is now by Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, He has an infinite line of credit. He's willing to extend to us. Think of the victory we have through the victor who has triumphed over sin, death, and hell. Maybe you're struggling hard against sin. There's a besetting sin in your life. The devil's about to bamboozle you with that thing. It's not self-help that will get you through that. I'm sorry, it's not psychological help. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, the conquering lamb upon the throne. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Think of the understanding of the Scriptures that we have since the resurrected Christ breathed on His disciples as I talked about that verse in John 20, verse 22. And when you compare it with Luke chapter 23, verse 45, immediately they began to understand the Scriptures for the first time. Until then they were blind as bats. They didn't get it. They were dense. Jesus said it again and again and again. They didn't get it. Oh, beloved. Heaven is not the same since Jesus ascended there. And my prayer today is that we, understanding that, we will not be the same. Because the devil doesn't want you to get this. Let's pray. Oh God, give us a foretaste of glory divine, as Fanny Crosby has said. May the glory of Jesus Christ captivate us and tantalize us and purify us and motivate us to live holy lives and enlist others to go to heaven with us. Lord, if there's even one here under the sound of my voice or watching the live stream, we're conscious that probably scores are doing that. Maybe they have a vague hope of heaven. You know, they think, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm, I'm not a heathen.
They have a kind of vague hope of heaven, but they've never been regenerated. They've never been meet for that inheritance of the saints in light that the Bible speaks of. Please, Lord, show them how undone and unprepared they are for their change. Bring them to the foot of the cross. May they bow the knee before the Lordship of the glorified Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.